We're picking up in lesson four of our introduction to biblical theology class. And um, last week I talked about dispensational theology. This week we're talking about covenant theology. And I wanted to provide a couple of clarifications. Steve helpfully made me aware that I probably got a little bit too into the weeds last week. And um, so maybe we need a little bit of uh, clarification on, on what I'm trying to do here. This whole class is trying to help us to understand the biblical story. What is the redemptive narrative that the Bible is telling? And there are different systems that try to articulate that story in brief, in, in a summarized form. And two of those main systems are dispensationalism and covenant theology. And these, these two systems try to articulate the story of the Bible, looking at both the Old and the New Testaments, And dispensationalism sees a lot of discontinuity or differences between the Old and the New Testament, which makes the story a little bit disjointed along the way. In covenant theology, I'm going to suggest, finds too many similarities between the two testaments, and um, so it flattens it out, and the story is not as robust uh, as it should be. There there are features that get um, ironed flat, that we don't see when we see too many similarities between the Old and the New Testament. The other thing that I want to say is that if you grew up in a church like I did, and if you've just grown up with a general awareness of dispensational and covenantal theologies, you've probably thought these are the only two ways of understanding the Bible's stories. Either you're a dispensationalist or you're a covenantal theologian, a covenantalist. And that's just not true. These are two prevailing systems, uh, but there are other ways of telling the biblical story or understanding it. And even within dispensationalism and covenant theology, there's a lot of differences between positions within within those sides. Uh, So um, that's what we're looking at. We're trying to say, how should we tell and understand the Bible's story? And to do that, um, I want to present something in the coming weeks that is a kind of a middle way between these two. It's not, it's not maybe right to call it a middle way because it, it's not just a balancing of these two things. It's something different, uh, but I think it's something helpful. To frame it though, we need to at least consider dispensational and covenantal theology. So I'm going to review uh, a little bit of dispensational theology and provide my critiques of it along the way. The things that I think are somewhat right, but then um, maybe not totally helpful for us. So I think dispensationalism fails to accommodate the full story of the Bible. First, because it imposes a foreign interpretive structure on the story through the identification of specific epochs of time or dispensations uh, through which redemption history is realized. And it's not through the changes of the biblical covenants, it's through these changes of dispensations along the way. So my main problem with dispensationalism from the start is that it's imposing an external structure on the text instead of arriving at a a structure derived from the internal cohesion of of the Bible. Uh, So that, I think, is very problematic. And by focusing on these epics, it's almost talked about sometimes as if God tried to redeem humanity in one dispensation, it failed, and so then he moved to the next dispensation, that one failed, and then then you work through, you know, to the seventh, and, and now you come to redemption that actually worked. 
And I don't think that's helpful because it puts on blinders so that you don't connect what God is doing through redemptive history. You're just looking at my slice of redemptive history. So this external framework, I think, fails to account for the unity of the story, and it, it fails to articulate what God is doing through time. Second, dispensationalism imposes an overly literalistic reading of text. That is to say, it takes very literally every single thing instead of, I think, reading according to the genre and the intention of the biblical authors. And it does so inconsistently because it also simultaneously allows for a spiritual application of text to the church while demanding a literal application of text to Israel. This overly literalistic reading maintains that prophecy is not fulfilled until it's fulfilled literally, and, and I, they support that through this circular reasoning. Um, it's not fulfilled until it's fulfilled literally, and we know this because it's always not fulfilled until it's fulfilled literally. And I think this circular reasoning is problematic and un- unhelpful. It allows for a spiritual fulfillment of prophecies to the church and maintains that the true fulfillment comes literally for Israel. And, and I don't know that that's the best telling of this story or the best interpretive grid. Uh, third, dispensationalism grounds the redemptive narrative and promises in the Abrahamic covenant, so in the covenant that takes place with Abraham, and it fails to connect to earlier parts of the redemptive story. So dispensationalism finds the end of the story in terms of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in a literal way to Israel. It doesn't reach back further to the start of the story. So when you're reading a story, you you want to see whatever happens at the beginning, you're looking for the connection at the end to, to reach back there, not to reach, you know, midway into the story with Abraham. And so if the culmination of redemptive history is found in Abrahamic promises, I think the, the dispensational view ignores a good chunk of redemptive history that we need to account for. And the conclusion is found in the parallels to that, not to the Abrahamic covenant. Um, so I, I was listening to someone talk about a, a novel or a book on how to write novels. And it talks about if, if your opening scene has a shotgun over a fireplace by the end of the story, that shotgun's got to be the murder weapon. Like you, the beginning of the story needs to connect to the end of the story. That's how stories work. And I think the Bible demonstrates for that for us is you start with a garden temple in the very beginning words of Genesis, and you end with a, a temple city in the last words of Revelation. And, and those ends should connect together to frame the biblical narrative, not just Abrahamic promise and then um, occupation of, of Israel land. Fourth, a dispensational articulation of redemption in the gospel tends to spiritualize the gospel for the church. The result is that the church is described as the spiritual people of God being rescued from creation and then exported or evacuated from earth up to heaven as an eternal dwelling. And I think even further, it it tends to privatize the Christian life to say it's just something spiritual. It's not about um, the, the physical world in the life in in the way that i live and embody the gospel and i think it fails to reckon with texts like in romans where where the whole creation is groaning for redemption and and god has a redemptive plan that extends beyond a spiritual evacuation of the church to heaven 
finally, I think dispensational theology, like covenant theology, positions itself as the only way of expressing the story of the Bible. And, and I think it's short-sighted and it fails to encapsulate this, the full story. Um, there are various valid biblical theological methods, like the one that I want to present in the coming weeks, where there's an organizing theme, kingdom, that comes about through an internal organizing structure of covenant. But there are other ways of telling the biblical story, and, and dispensational theology cannot allow for those. Um, I want to, well, let me pause. Any questions on, on our review from last week? Hopefully that at least puts my critiques forward in a clear way. All right, I don't think dispensational theology is all wrong. I just think some of these sticking points would lead us to say, let's grab what we can from this, uh, but not, let's not rely solely on this. I want to recommend two alternative ways of telling the, the biblical story. So dispensationalism does it through dispensations. Covenant theology that we'll talk about today does it through these three overarching covenants. Um, the, the way I'll propose is through the biblical covenants. Some, some people put together the story of the Bible in terms of a cohesive center or one central theme of the Bible. And I don't think that can totally be maintained. But there are two really good attempts at this in, in recent years. One is by a guy named Jim Hamilton, who's a professor at Southern Seminary. And he, he argues that the main or central theme of the Bible, the center of biblical theology, is God's glory and salvation through judgment. And even though I don't totally buy it, I, I think that this is a really good book for people to read through as they're reading through the Bible. He goes through like every, every book of the Bible along the way. So if you're reading through the Bible in a year and want just a good explanation of it, uh, this, is, this is a really, really helpful book. If you go through that, you'll start to see where he has trouble demonstrating that every book of the Bible supports this central theme. So, for instance, when you get to the Song of Solomon, I don't think he does a good job of showing that that book demonstrates God's glory and salvation through judgment. I don't think it contributes towards that center of biblical theology. So I think we need something bigger than this theme. Um, one that I think does an even better job, I think this was published 2019 or 2020. I think 2019. Yeah, 2019. Um, it's called God's Relational Presence. And I think this book does a makes the best argument for a center of, of biblical theology. And you can do the same thing with this one. If you're reading through the Bible, you can track through every book. And I, I would recommend this one, maybe even over uh, Hamilton's book. I just think it's, it's really well done and, and well laid out. These guys also wrote a book on biblical interpretation called Grasping God's Word. That's really good. And so I think they, they carefully apply an interpretive method to a, a whole reading of the Bible in a helpful way. All right, before I go on, any, any questions or, or comments here? Okay, I, I have a chart for you there on page two that kind of outlines the range of views with discontinuity and continuity or difference in sameness regarding the Old and New Testaments on either side. And last week we looked at the three iterations of dispensationalism. In the future we'll look at pro progressive covenantalism. This week we're looking at covenantal theology. You'll notice on the far right there's a view called Christian Reconstructionism which is an addition of covenant theology that, that is, I think, 
um, it should be rejected. It, it goes way, 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 way on the sameness side and makes some suggestions, like for instance, that the old covenant law should be maintained by the state. And so there's this idea that both the civil government and the church are underneath the the old covenant laws in the moral form and in the civil form just not in the ceremonial form so we'll talk about those distinctions down the road but i i think that this view is really unhelpful it's the kind of view that would um, support this idea that we need to just take over the government as christians and and um, extend christendom over the world in in maybe a military fashion most wouldn't say that but this theology has supported some of that. Um, It's the kind of theology that would help um, individuals coming from England to the United, well, what's now the United States with the idea of manifest destiny, saying this is the new Israel land that we need to take over and um, institute God's rule. So there's no separation between church and state. It's sort of combined. Um, In terms of end times views, these would adopt a post-millennial view in terms of we essentially spread the kingdom until it's here in its fullness and and we exercise God's kingdom over the world. So I'm not even going to spend a lesson considering that or any more time than I already have on it because I I don't know that it's as popular in our area as it is in some places like um, Idaho and some of these other places where there are centers, there are um, seminaries. I'm not saying that to make fun of it for being rural. I'm saying that because there there are seminaries and churches well known that are in those places that would maybe connect more closely with this, even if not entirely. So we're going to look at covenant theology. Um, Covenant theology is rooted in the Reformation And there's a unique Baptist expression of covenant theology in the second London Baptist Confession of 1689. And um, that's a bit of an aberration from true covenant theology because they don't maintain the uh, paedo-baptism and they don't maintain a mixed uh, covenant community of believers and unbelievers. I am not going to talk too much about the Baptist edition of this. I'm going to talk more about the edition that deals with uh, that you'd find in Presbyterian or other other circles. Um, the Baptist edition, I think, is just plainly inconsistent. Um, dispensationalists and true covenant theologians all look at that and say, you're, you're making jumps here that can't be made. I think they're making a jump in the right direction, but maybe not grounded in the right way. So if you're interested in reading the Baptist edition of covenant theology, um, I put the link to a helpful you know, layout of it on a website called the 1689confession.com. A more traditional articulation of covenant theology is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I linked that there for you as well. Um, Unlike dispensationalism, which describes the progression of redemption in terms of these seven epics or dispensations, covenant theology imposes a different external framework on the Bible made up of three primary covenants. Um, and these covenants are the, the eternal covenant, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. We'll look at each of these individually in a moment, uh, but all, they still believe in all of the biblical covenants. They just interpret them through the, the lens of these three larger covenants, and it'll become more complicated in a moment because that's true for all of them, 
except for the Abrahamic covenant. So what, what I'm going to show you is that they have these three overarching covenants that they interpret all of the biblical covenants through. But with the covenant of grace, they extract the Abrahamic covenant and stick it on top and look at everything through the Abrahamic covenant, which is just the same error that I think uh, dispensationalism makes, where they interpret the entire story through the Abrahamic covenant and root it there. So follow along if you, if you can as we look at that. Um, but the result is, we'll see, where dispensationalism separates Israel in the church, ultimately um, the, in, in covenant theology, is Israel and the church are connected totally together. Um, the, the nature of the communities are the same. Israel and the church include believers and unbelievers. They're mixed people in that sense. They're, they're also mixed, just weighted in a different way, they would say, at, at this current time with more Gentiles in the church than Jews. Um, but they, they would suggest that the church has its roots all the way back in Israel, and it's the same organic group, and there's no distinction between the two, uh, which I think is somewhat problematic. Um, The covenant signs between Israel and the church are similar. One is physical and literal circumcision for the old covenant people, and in the new covenant people, it's now baptism, and there's a typological fulfillment of, of circumcision, they might say, or spiritual fulfillment. Uh, so no longer is the covenant sign bloody, but it's, it's watery. And so that, that's the progression in covenant signs. And uh, the salvation experience is really quite similar. Um, and the indwelling of the Spirit is basically the same. So unlike dispensationalists, and then as I'll argue, uh, who would identify the church forming in Acts 2 with the outpouring of the Spirit, they would suggest that the, the Spirit has, in some sense, been indwelling believers in the same way in both Israel and the church. So these similarities are maintained virtually by all covenant theologians, with the exception of Baptist versions that, that would not uh, commend paedo-baptism. As I already mentioned, there are a lot of varieties of covenant theology, ranging from that Baptist covenant theology all the way to Seventh-day Adventists, you know, apply a form of, of covenant theology. And um, that, that I think we can recognize, it's, it's more easily recognized as problematic in those, those terms because of some external things, like Seventh-day Adventists gather on Saturday, not on Sunday. So there are just some very clear, distinctive factors there um, that where, where um, we maybe would have more in common with Presbyterians in some way, just because we're worshiping on the same day and, and carrying some sa- of the same things forward. With Seventh-day Adventists, we, we don't even gather on the same day of the week, and so, so that's troubling in for, for any kind of, you know, continuity between the two. But let's talk about covenant theology and the biblical covenants. I'm going to save a definition of covenant until the coming weeks because we, we need to work hard to understand what a covenant is. Um, but we could understand it basically as a formal oath or a bond involving mutual but not necessarily equal commitment. So it's not just a contract because it's much more relational. And, and ultimately, covenants create a kinship relationship. Um, but so, so they're not just contracts, but, but they change your, not only your status and your agreement, but also your relationship to be what we would call a fictive kinship. So fictive, fictional, it's not genetic, it's fictive, but it's um, a kinship. You're, you're thought of as family now. 
So there are three covenants. The eternal covenant or the covenant of redemption is affirmed by covenant theology. And in, in this affirms that the triune God in eternity past covenanted together to redeem humanity. Um, so in eternity past, there's this intra-Trinitarian pre-temporal um, covenant that's made to redeem humanity from sin. Uh, this, I don't think we should disagree with the concept of this because over and over again in the Bible, it's pretty clear that God from eternity past has, has planned redemption. Uh, scripture speaks of this, even as we considered, you know, I guess months ago now in Ephesians 4, where from before the foundation of the world, uh, God chose his people. We, we can appeal to texts like that, but I think it's debatable in, in stretching things to call that a covenant. Uh, so while it's a right category, this eternal redemptive plan of God in which each member of the Trinity plays a role, we often talk about it in terms of God the Father is the author, God the Son is the accomplisher, and, and the Spirit is the mediator of redemption. I don't think we can say this is a, a covenant, and I don't think that we should impose that as one of the three main features of telling the, the biblical story. We need it. We can't deny it. It's true, but it's, it's not a covenant. So there's this pretemporal covenant of works or, or covenant of redemption. Would they would they say the covenant is sort of between God and Himself? Between yep, an intra-trinitarian covenant. Uh, so um, I think there are problems with that as we talk about what a covenant is, but it's at least a category that they're operating with. Um, so then uh, the covenant of works is the first outworking of the covenant of redemption. So you can almost think of it as very high on the chart, covenant of redemption in eternity past. And then coming out of that, you have two covenants, one, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Um, so the covenant of works is sometimes referred to as the covenant of nature or the covenant of life or the covenant with creation or something like that. In this covenant, it said, is made with Adam as a representative of the human race before the fall into sin. And in this covenant, if Adam kept the stipulations of the covenant perfectly, he would be granted eternal life, as would the rest of humanity. Um, but, tragically, Adam didn't keep the conditions of the covenant, and so eternal life was not granted, and instead the curses of the covenant, death, were, were enacted. And so this covenant comes to a conclusion in the failure of Adam to maintain the, the covenant of works. Now, I am going to, in the coming weeks, suggest that there is a covenant at creation, but it's not what covenant theologians are saying is the covenant at creation. It's a, it's a different thing. Um, I, I think there are some problems with the way that covenant theologians articulate the covenant of works. Uh, one of them being this idea that Adam was not granted to eat of the tree of life unless he had, you know, maintained the covenant stipulations, where that's not the tree that he's restricted from in, in the garden. And I think there's more going on there. And I think it has a lot more to do with uh, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil uh, as um, a place where a covenantal meal is shared between God and humanity and, and they shared in that covenantal meal with the serpent instead, in a sense. So I'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. So I think there is a covenant of creation. It's not, I don't think, what's being descri described by covenant theologians. So um, 
we, I think, should say they're onto something in saying that there were stipulations for Adam. There are elements of life and death that are in view, uh, but I think it's more than that, and I don't think that we can describe it neatly in terms of a covenant of works. Furthermore, we should commend covenant theology for trying to connect um, the first Adam and the last Adam here by giving attention to this in a way that dispensationalism does not. However, I don't think they do so through the right grid. Um, so ultimately, I don't think that we can call either of those two covenants in the same sense that they are. Um, some, some covenant theologians debate whether or not the Mosaic Covenant should be included in the Covenant of Works or not, as if the Covenant of Works and the Covenant of Grace run parallel into the future instead of Covenant of Works being done away with and only Covenant of Grace going forward. That's too complicated to get into here, but most Covenant theologians put Mosaic Covenant under the Covenant of Grace, which is what we'll talk about next. But let me pause. Any questions or comments on uh, Eternal Covenant? Um, or covenant of works. Ben. Yeah, Genesis 2 is where it would show up when the, the man is given instruction to guard and to keep the garden. So you have some covenant obligations, and then you have a covenantal curse if he fails to keep those obligations, which is death. And then implied in that, they would say, is the blessing of eternal life. Um, some of the other problems with that is there's no indication of when the covenant of works would have reached its completion. Um, you know, does this continue on ad infinitum, or is there a singular test, and was that the, the testing of the serpent, and if Adam and Eve had, had passed that test, then would they have entered into eternal life forever? The, these are some of the questions that I think make it untenable. Yeah, I think that's right. You're getting into conditional and unconditional covenants. We'll talk about that in the future. I think those are categories that we shouldn't operate in. I don't think any covenant is either conditional or unconditional. The nature of covenants is that they're reciprocal, they're relationship forming. So there are elements that go back and forth. Um, so you're right, though. This is viewed as a conditional covenant and only on one side that Adam keeps the conditions. Okay, let's move on to the covenant of grace. Virtually every covenant beginning with Noah forward is put underneath or filtered through this covenant of grace. This covenant, of course, is also grounded in God's eternal plan, and it first appears in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of the seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And we would agree with that. There are, in, in, with both dispensational and covenantal theolo theologies, there are elements that we agree with along the way. So we don't say they're all wrong in their entirety. Um, how, however, as the covenant of grace is understood, the biblical covenants unfold within the covenant of grace, and 
and they're unified by the covenant of grace. So there's the essentially the same thing happening across the covenants, though there might be a different, you know, we might say administration of the covenants along the way. So along the way, the Abrahamic covenant might be viewed as a, an unconditional covenant. God alone will make sure this comes to pass, where the Mosaic covenant is viewed as a conditional covenant, where Israel has to meet the stipulations of the covenant. So, th- so they would indicate some distinctions along the way, but ultimately this covenant of grace tracks along and finds its progression and culmination in the coming of Christ. And there's much with that that I think we should agree with. Um, they, they want to make clear that there are not two covenants of grace, one for Israel and one for the church. So they try to make clear there's one covenant of grace. And as such, unless the New Testament explicitly um, replaces something in the old covenant, it's still in place in the new covenant. Um, so this relates even to things like the Mosaic law. So covenant theology will say we need to understand the Mosaic law in terms of a tripartite structure. So you have the moral law. This is what God deems moral that's communicated in the Old Covenant. And a lot of this will be seen in the Ten Commandments. You have the civil law, which would include laws like, you know, build a parapet around your house so that your neighbor doesn't fall off your roof. And then you have the ceremonial laws, which have much to do with the sacrifices and and temple ceremonies and rituals. And they would say that uh, both the, mor- the moral law is still in view and anything from the civil law that's not abrogated or, or replaced is in view as well. And so you end up with things like the sab- uh, Sabbatarian position saying we, the Sabbath needs to be kept holy. So no work on the Sabbath, these sorts of things that would be sinful uh, to, to violate the Sabbath. Now, interestingly enough, some dispensationalists unknowingly uh, do the exact same thing and apply the Ten Commandments as if they're still in view, even though their dispensational framework would say the whole of the Mosaic law is abrogated. Uh, and you see this where prominent dispensationalists will advocate for the posting of the Ten Commandments you know, on a courthouse or something like that, even though in their system it's done away with. Now, covenantal theologians at least have a a framework to say this is still in view. We need to um, apply it, and the Ten Commandments are for us in the same way that they were for Israel. I think that's problematic. I don't think you can distinguish the law in that way. I mean, every law, civil especially, you can trace back to to the Ten Commandments and, and the two great commandments. You can't really separate anything no Israelite ever would have, none do now. It's just an external convention that I don't think is quite helpful. Um, in contrast, well, let's, let's continue on here. Um, the complicating issue with the covenant of grace is that it becomes viewed primarily through the Abrahamic covenant. So a covenant that's supposed to be understood through the overarching covenant of grace now becomes the framework for for the covenant of grace itself. So everything is viewed through the Abrahamic covenant, and really the culmination of salvation history comes through the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Now, certainly the Abrahamic covenant is important, um, and, and a great deal of redemptive history comes to conclusion in fulfillment of those promises, but it's almost made as if everything comes to its fulfillment through those promises. There are, there's some other information there that I provided for you that highlights the different parties and, and um, elements of these three covenants, but with our last 
few minutes, I want to skip down to page eight with a summary of covenant theology and then my concluding um, you know, critiques or uh, remarks on covenant theology. I, of course, have not been able to walk through everything that constitutes covenant theology. That would take, like, I mean, there are whole seminary classes dedicated to that. So I'm just giving you the summary of covenant theology's conclusions, and I want to provide a critique of those. So Oren Martin says, covenant theology argues that all of God's saving purposes in history serve the eternal covenant of redemption in Christ. In the covenant of works, God established a relationship uh, with humanity in Adam that was typological of the last Adam who did what Adam and his descendants failed to do. They failed to keep the covenant of works. Through Christ's holy incarnate life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session, he leads his people, both Jew and Gentile, to eternal life. As a result, all in the church are in the new covenant and are baptized. Not only those that do actually profess faith in, in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents who are baptized. The overarching covenant of grace, then, explains why there is a continuity across redemptive history, a continuity that establishes the nature of the church and its ordinances. Okay, so that, that's the brief summary of their conclusions. Let me give my critiques here about why I think covenant theology doesn't tell this Bible's story in the best way. First, covenant theology imposes a foreign interpretive structure on the text through the identification of theological covenants rather than tracing the internal structure of the biblical covenants. I think that's the structure that we need to understand the biblical story. With this external structure, it de-emphasizes these biblical covenants. Second, covenant theology rightly militates against an overly literalistic reading of the text. However, it can swing too far in the other direction, employing an over-typological reading of the text that frames the distinctions between the OT and New Testament, primarily in terms of literal promise and typological fulfillment, or you might say spiritual fulfillment. Third, covenant theology grounds the redemptive narrative in the eternal covenant and demonstrates the outworking of redemption in the covenant of grace. However, the covenant of grace is then viewed through the prism of the Abrahamic covenant in a way that minimizes God's covenantal purposes in creation and overemphasizes the Abrahamic covenant's role in redemption. Like dispensationalism, covenant theology leans too heavily on the Abrahamic covenant. However, instead of requiring a literal, literal continuation of the land promise, dispensationalism requires a literal... Oh, okay, I, I typed this wrong. I apparently was rushing. Where dispensationalism requires that the land promise be literally fulfilled in connection to the Abrahamic covenant, covenantal theology requires that the genealogical principle um, is uh, spiritually fulfilled dispensationalism wants it literally fulfilled. So dispensationalism says Abrahamic promise, keep literal land promise, that must be fulfilled literally, and take spiritually genealogical principle, um, or, or sorry, take literally genealogical principle, you must have an ethnic Israel. Covenant theology says um, take typologically or spiritually both land promise and, and the genealogical principle. Anyone can be there spiritually, but in some sense, we need to have it literal as well. So children of believers, you're part of the covenant. So there they have this like split literal and spiritual and gene genealogical principle uh, where dispensational keeps it literal. Sorry for the confusion there. Um, covenant theology uh, well, number four, covenant theology's articulation of redemption in the gospel tends to jump too quickly from Old Testament promises that entail literal, 
literal elements like land, seed, and blessing to a spiritualization of the fulfillment of those promises in the present age. They flatten the biblical covenants, and I think they lose the distinctions in the progressive steps of redemption. Um, Finally, covenant theology also positions itself as the only way of expressing the biblical narrative. I, so what, what I'm trying to point out is that both dispensational and covenantal theologies rely too heavily on the Abrahamic covenant, um, where dispensational theology spiritualizes one element of the Abrahamic covenant, that is the genealogical principle, there, uh, or sorry, where it spiritualizes and says the church gets all the spiritual blessings, Israel gets the physical blessings, that they apply a spiritual interpretation on that level, but then they apply a literal interpretation on the ethnic Israel and, and the land promise. Covenant theology says we need to have literal genealogical principles such that any Christian's children are part of the covenant, but we also need to spiritualize that to say um, that it's not just uh, ethnic Israel, but it's Gentiles and Israel together. And so in both, there's this odd mixture of literal and spiritual interpretations that I don't think are consistently carried out. And I think that's what's problematic. Both of them are because they underdevelop the biblical covenants, in my view anyway, by replacing them with external structures of dispensations and, and three overarching covenants. And in so doing, lose the way that the covenants connect and ultimately do find their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, but it, it down covenant theology in particular downplays the distinction between Israel and the church where that distinction is met in Christ, not totally in this organic progression. These things are complicated, and so I'm trying to give the most brief, simple explanation as possible, um, but I'm always happy to talk about these things at another time, but I did save three minutes for questions. Tim? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and there's nothing nefarious or even wrong about using an external framework. We do this all the time as we try to un understand things. We develop frameworks. Um, but I don't think we need to use these frameworks because the Bible gives us an in internal um, constructive framework, which is the covenant, and a the thematic framework, which is the kingdom of God. Starting in the garden as Adam and Eve act as kings and queens, vice regents of God, uh, and then that kingdom theme is carried along through covenant all the way in, until the fullness of God's kingdom comes in the new covenant. So I think those structures, that the thematic coherence and the structural coherence of kingdom and covenant are working out from the internal features of the Bible instead of imposing external features on. Any other questions? Yeah, so the theological covenants, they call them covenants, but they're not the, you know, Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, New. So they're theologically constructed covenants. So they're understood to be covenants. They're just not um, the biblical covenants. So, th yeah, I tried to distinguish, you know, framing covenant, theological covenant, biblical covenant, what they're explaining.
All right, other. Okay, next week, um, we're going to have like a parenthetical lesson before we get to progressive covenantalism, and that is going to be on issues in interpretation um, in terms of the horizons in the Bible and in terms of what typology is, because I've thrown some of those terms out, and, and we need to get to that before we can get to progressive covenantal ideas. Tim? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the logic of presenting it this way is so that now you have dispensational and covenantal theologies in mind, so that way I can reference them throughout the rest of the Bible class to show where what I'm presenting is both similar and dissimilar to both of those. So regardless of where you're coming from, you'll see where, where maybe this would tweak those views and, and provide a, I think, helpful corrective. All right, let me pray, and then we'll prepare for our, our morning service. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for theologians from both dispensational and covenantal uh, backgrounds who have worked hard to try to tell the biblical story and for the way that you have used those systems to uh, draw attention to important features of this story. We pray that you would help us as we seek to learn from them and learn from others who have charted a different course that, that perhaps would be a more helpful telling of this story. We, we pray that as we progress, our ultimate aim wouldn't be to stake out a camp or a flag, but ultimately to understand your story of redemption in the way that you bring your rule and reign to your people. And we long for the day when that happens completely. So give us a desire for that as we come to know the biblical story better. In Christ we pray. Amen.